Welcome to the Hands-On, Hands-Off podcast, where we talk about manual therapy with clinicians, researchers, and educators. We are curious manual therapists interested in battling misinformation on both sides. We know manual therapy is not a blanket fix for everything, yet we also appreciate that it can be a valuable tool for many. So, please sit back and enjoy the show as we unravel the complexities of who, when, what, why, and maybe even how to apply or not apply manual therapy. Here are your hosts, Derek Cluley and Seth Peterson. Hello, this is Derek Cluley, one of the hosts of the Hands On Hands Off podcast. And today we are interviewing Greg Kauchuk. Greg is an awesome guest to have on the show today. We were super excited to get him on here if you went to the American Academy of Manual Physical Therapy's conference this year, he was one of our keynotes. He's very well published in manual therapy, which is something that I think is relatively rare to see uh, in this day and age of research. And his research perspective is a little bit different. I mean, he's actually looking at the forces and the impact of the mechanisms associated with manual therapy and how that actually might come in to play. So we talk all kinds of things, including all kinds of gadgets that he's using to um, do this stuff with. You know, he's actually a pretty smart individual. He's got a couple degrees in biomechanics and bioengineering, and he's a full professor at the University of Alberta. So I think you're going to really enjoy this show. And so sit back and enjoy it and, and hang along for the ride. All right. So today we have Greg Kotchuk on the show. I'm super excited to have him, both Seth and I, Got an opportunity to hear him speak at the AOMP conference in 2022 in San Diego, California. Uh, his presentation on mechanisms, I think, was one that got us to think a little bit more. And in terms of the Centers for Excellence in Manual and Manipulative Therapy, it made a lot of sense to get Greg onto the show. So, Greg, we are super excited to have you on today. Thank you for joining us all the way from, is it Calgary or Edmonton? Or where are you at, I guess? It. Edmonton. Yeah, we spent some time in Calgary, uh, started our family there, but we've been here since 2004. So everyone always asked me, you know, what you're moving further north? Is that? <laughs> they can't understand that. But uh, no, I'm super excited to be here with, with you two and, and follow up on some of the things that uh, we're at the meeting and just generally have a, a discussion about things we're really excited and passionate about. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I actually have been through Edmonton, driven through Edmonton in the middle of December, oddly enough, um, which is not something that most people can claim to do unless you probably live in Edmonton. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's I, not that's I, not a touristy I, thing. No, we uh, by back in the mid nineties, uh, I was coming back from Alaska. We moved uh, my girlfriend and I at the time, um, and. Uh, she was homesick, and I'm from Montana, and so uh, we drove down uh, right around the middle of December, and uh, I got to tell you, by the time we got to Edmonton, it felt like the most amazing place we could ever be, because you can't go much more north of Edmonton and be anywhere. <laughs> so. Well, I think there's a stat that Edmonton is like the biggest metropolitan center in proximity of the Arctic Circle. So yeah, I, I think you got that right. It's uh, And you know, for us, when we grew up, you know, crossing the border and going to Montana was like the same thing. It was like it's an exotic new country and, you know, fast food franchises. As soon as you cross the border, you've never seen before. It, it was like, yeah, you 
you felt like you were in another world. It was it was pretty exciting as a six or seven year old. I got to tell you. Please don't say that when you got to Montana. You felt like you were in the warm part of the world now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess some people around, especially in um, some parts of the United States, might actually consider Montana as part of a southern Canada. I suppose. Yeah, I grew up in you Minnesota, know, think, so. Uh, oh, did you really? Yeah, so like you guys are just you know the same as uh, Winnipeggers, and I think we run north south and identify that way sometimes more than, than east-west, right? Like, I think we have way more in common speech, uh, accents and things with people uh, right below us than we do on the other coast, right? It's so different. So, uh, yeah, I think there's always been a, a really great fondness for the, the people on each side of the border, right? Yep, absolutely, 100%. Um, well, very cool. Well, um, so beyond our affinity and likeness to um, our time zones and such. Uh, also uh, super interested in hearing a little bit more about mechanisms and all that stuff. Before we get to that, I'm going to ask you a few, few fun softball kind of questions here to kind of get our listeners to know you maybe just a little bit more. And hopefully these questions will um, churn that a little bit there. So the first question is this, if you had an opportunity to have dinner with three people, and they could be dead or alive. Who would it be, and why? Well, three. I would, do, do we have dinner all together? Like, is it a table for four, or is it like one at a time? Yes, assume a, that, a table for four all together. Yeah, a table for four. Okay. Um, well, I know the first one. I mean, I think we all have these set answers to some degree. So I'm going to struggle to come up with the other two. But the first one is is my wife's dad because I never got to meet him, so I would really, really like to to have heard about uh, him and uh, her growing up, and yeah, just someone I've I've always wished I could have met. Um, other people, um, <laughs> I wish I was better prepared for this. I, mean, I think I would have a better time thinking of like what kind of restaurant to go to <laughs> than I, I, I would the, the people to speak with. But um, I, you, you know, there was, um, oh, you guys are going to have to cut this because I'm going to take like 30 minutes just thinking of, you know, who it's going to be. But <laughs> This used to just be one, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we made it harder on you. <laughs> you, you yeah, sure. Definitely. Uh, engineering that brought us to this. We need a, we need a little bit more. Or maybe I it's like to Engineering that you just want one. I think it's hard to pick. Okay, one. you know what? I'm going to say my wife and her mom, and then they, they can talk about, you know, the whole family thing. And then there, there's my three. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I have to be way Shut more up. imaginative. I think. You know, I have a hard time committing to final answers. So, yeah, that that's going to be um, an ongoing theme here, I'm sure. Well, maybe we gave you something to ponder over the weekend um, with this question. All right. So, oh, I'll be talking next... about that for sure. <laughs> All right. So if you um, I mean, you've actually you have sort of um, looking at your degrees and such here, you have obviously a. Uh, bachelor's degree in biology, um, a chiropractic doctorate, and then engineering uh, background as well. But 
take all those um, professions and those options away, what would be another profession that you would be interested in doing if you not that you would do it all over again? Because I'm pretty sure that you're happy where you're at. But if you had a had another life and another option for a profession, what would you like to do? Oh yeah, that's an easy one. There's there's a there's a few, and like there's an unending list. I I could put um, professional drummer in there. I'm the worst drummer. I mean, like, I'm terrible, but I think it'd be so cool, like, to do that as a thing. Um, over the pandemic, we got super into making pizza. So I, I, I'd like to run a restaurant and see what that's like. You know, I think we all see those shows on TV and wonder what it's like, you know, to take a crack at something like that. Um, and then weirdly, um, pathologist. I, I think that, uh, you know, kind of figuring things out, it's, it's a bit like, um, a veterinarian, you know, you don't get to, to be able to talk to who it is that you're dealing with, but just being able to figure out the mystery from the clues that are there. And maybe that's like a really skewed view based on the, the eighties and nineties TV shows I grew up with, you know, the, the, the celebrity pathologist who always figures it out after 60 minutes. And it, I mean, that, that seems really cool to me, but I think at the end, you know, one of the greatest things about being an investigator is, uh, you just change as much in the day as, as you need to, right? From, oh, I'm going to read papers to, I've got to come up with these creative ideas or, wow, I got to mark exams. And I think for me, that's like the perfect combination because sticking with one thing for too long is like really trouble for me, uh, as you might guess. And, uh, I, I think to pick any one thing in the end, it, it's probably a, a very short lived you know, attempt at being something else because then there's something shiny around the corner and that's, that's the next greatest thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we'll take that one for sure. Uh, all right, good. I'm going to leave it at that for the softball questions. We'll come into the, 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 stuff uh, that are I the more smash balls. well, we might have a few more. I, Seth might actually have a few okay. up his sleeve too. He seems to be a little bit more creative than I am, I think. So <laughs> Softball questions. I mean, we can get our heads together, but I I like what you're working with here. <laughs> uh, so, oh, actually, speaking of pizza, this is a little bit of a random aside. On our way down from Alaska, the best pizza I ever had was Pizza Hut, which doesn't make any sense because Pizza Hut is just regular pizza. But because in Canada, they don't just have block heaters, especially in northern Canada. They have uh, oil pan heaters. They have battery pack warmers. They have all kinds of stuff. And so when we got to Whitehorse, Yukon, it was the first place that there was sort of this fast food or familiar food. And we got in and it was, I swear, the warmest pizza hut and the warmest pizza I've ever had. And I'm never going to taste pizza like that again in my life. And I think it was all completely contextual um, factors, which kind of leads us into some of the manual therapy discussion. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think you know, when we look at both Seth and I, to full disclosure, probably come from a little bit more of a similar background. Uh, we, our fellowship training, you know, we both went through the same fellowship training in manual therapy program, kind of grew up in the same era of manual therapy where, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot more mechanistic um, explanations for manual therapy. And then by the time that we got through, it was a little bit, you know, turned around a little bit to some extent about well, we don't really know what is going on. And so, but we know that it does seem to work and there's trials that support efficacy in relation to pain and disability and dysfunction. And we tried to explain it with all sorts of models and such. And it was curious when we got to 
uh, AOMT. And I hadn't seen this in a while, um, probably since I was taught manual therapy early on about, you know, the mechanisms that we were looking for. I guess if you could, in a nutshell, uh, sort of explain why you're interested in this when it almost seemed like the mechanisms of manual therapy, the biomechanics of it um, and such were seeming to be a little bit more downplayed in, in terms of the literature. And now it seems to be something that is coming back into fold. Well, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm so ready to go off on this because there's, there's so much to talk about and, uh, and, and it's exciting. It, it's exciting to me to to be able to do it. So thank thanks for that question. And we're going to have to interrupt each other because, like I say, it's, it's just too easy to go on and on and on. So so keep me a check here. But you know, I think one of the things that we all gravitate towards is is simplicity. So you know, when when something kind of comes along, um, it's a little easier sometimes to put it into perspective by jumping on board with with one thing. And I think all of us have had that in clinical practice or in reading paper, whatever it may be that you sort of say, I'm this kind of person now, right? you know, pain science, or, you know, this, this is kind of contextual stuff is what, you know, really uh, aligns with what I think, or that's the latest or something. And I think we've kind of lost the, the perspective that there may not be one particular mechanism of, there be many mechanisms. And in fact, there was a paper that came out a little while ago about exercise. And if you think of that, right, we kind of think it's all locked down, but you know, there's many, many uh, mechanisms that are still being explored and they fall into various categories, whether it's tissue healing or aerobic capacity. And, you know, there's so many different ways that exercise affects something. Uh, but yet, you know, we kind of have this reductionist view that when it comes to manual therapy, uh, there, there should be this one explanation. And if, you know, if, if one falls a little short, it, it's not the right one. Whereas the reality is probably that um, there's several mechanisms depending on the, the problem with the person, the surroundings they're in, where they're at in their life, who's giving the therapy and other uh, factors like that. So I think, especially through some things we can talk about, like ForceNet and some of these new uh, initiatives that are coming up, you know, really understanding mechanisms is is where we can really get to the point of how do we deliver the best therapy to someone? Because if you're if you don't know the mechanisms, it, it's really a best guess. And we've done pretty good up till now. There's good ways that you can guess. There's there's clues out there that help you focus in on that. But really, the study of mechanisms is not lost because it's it's something that fine tunes where it is that we can go and do a better job of matching treatment with the patient. Greg, I think, I mean, I'll kind of jump in here. I mean, I've followed some of your research. It's just been totally fascinating to me. I know that uh, you've done a lot with like pistons and probes, probably as much as most aliens do. So I'm kind of curious if you can go into some, <laughs> some of that research. Like, what? Yeah. how did you get into that? And then what did, what did you learn? Oh, oh, how did I get? I mean, I got, I got into chiropractic because um, of, of migraines when I was a kid and it really helped me and it, it set me on a course of, of wanting to be in healthcare and it just kept making more and more sense. So after an undergraduate degree in microbiology, you know, this was the clinical path. 
But then as a, as a practitioner, you know, I was really became frustrated with here, you know, two people come into practice and they're the same age, the same sex, the same mechanism of injury, you name it. And as best as I can, you know, I'm giving them something that I think is going to help. And uh, as best as I can see there, there's a lot of equality in, in who they are and, and what's happened. And yet completely different responses as, you know, really shook me to my core. You know, why is that? And it, how, how can I even start predict who, who's going to respond and, and who isn't? And uh, it was these kinds of questions that said, well, maybe I should volunteer at the local university and get involved. And that that was the, the off-ramp in, into research um, eventually, as, as full-time research anyways. So that, that's what kind of drove it. And it seemed to me, you know, some of my mentors early on, had some really key phrases and things. And, and one of them was that if, if you don't measure it, how are you going to know if it really changes or not? So we seem to have a measurement problem in, in the spine and, uh, yeah. you know, nothing wrong with self, self-reported measures, hugely important. But as you probably saw, uh, at the AOMT presentation this year, you know, there, there, I think there really needs to be a balance between self-reported measures and objective physical measures of something. They each provide important information. One isn't necessarily more important than the other, but we really lack that physical measurement side. And, and we can measure a ton of physical things. That the question is whether they're clinically meaningful or not. So that that was the quest. Um, that's how it all started. And it seemed to me that some of these proby things that you mentioned, Seth, with the, you know, the alien type poking and pushing here and there in the back, Seemed to be a, seemed to be maybe that that was where the promise was. And that, it, it definitely has shown lots of promise. Doesn't mean that there aren't other things out there that, that may be promising, but that's, uh, where I started my investigative career. And it, it still seems to be, um, something that is still producing possibilities. So, uh, maybe one day we'll see something come along that is a game changer uh, in terms of this physical measurement that we haven't yet imagined or been able to measure uh, because of technological limitations. But um, I, I think that's really going to be an important step forward when we can make those kinds of measurements in the same way, which you know, we would with ECG in the heart or uh, what have you, you know, it's still important to know how cardiac conditions affect someone, how they impact their lives, but we wouldn't take that alone. We, we'd want to know what the function of the heart is, how well it's functioning uh, in ways that are meaningful to the patient. And we're, we're really missing that. Yeah, that was going to be kind of, I think, my question. So I'm glad that you alluded to that. You know, where do you see, because, yes, we did see all the poking and the probing and that kind of information. And, you know, somebody that came up, my manual therapy background was, like I said, very uh, biomechanistic based. Yet I would put my hand on a patient and I couldn't tell you if it was a grade two minus stiffness or whatever it was, right? My in, my own intra rate of reliability was way askew. Um, and so I respected that. And I think the romanticism of, well, that doesn't matter because that now, okay, now I don't have to worry about my measurement, right? I don't have to worry about how my hands feel on this. But in terms of the uh, what you see as a, a vision with some of the, the research that you're doing, are you seeing some of like the potential for this in clinical practice where a clinician 
And I, and again, I know as, as a scientist, you don't know because you haven't identified the answers yet. Um, but is it one day your thought that potentially there's something that can measure something that predicts that and that we're going to be looking at tools or devices that can be used in clinical practice that can actually measure that? Or are you using more of these tools and devices to help to identify that? I mean, obviously, first, that 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 does matter, I guess. But I guess a, a game-changing down the line, what's your thoughts? I, I, yeah, it's a great question because it, it you know, and the answer, as you always know, is it depends because it, there's so many factors in that that the, decide whether or not a measurement uh, is something that you can do often or or maybe more infrequently. Does it move into daily clinical practice? Well, it's got to be cheap and, and easy and fast and uh, the information has to be solid or is it something you do every so often, maybe more in medical legal or follow up or, or the, so I, I think there's a lot of different roles for measurement. Um, but, but for instance, um, and this is, this is just a little bit of a stretch based on the work that we've done here so far, but in, at least in some studies, we've, we've shown that there are people whose stiffness changes really quickly following manual therapy. Yeah, we provide them with manipulation and there, there's an immediate change that, that we measure with the devices that we have. And th there's others who change more slowly. And uh, our preliminary work so far is that these people are actually different. The, the ones who change more slowly seem to have more degenerative change. And that would make sense, right? You're not, you're not going to maybe have a, fast, impactful change in someone who whose spine is different than the other people's. So do you need to know that on a treatment-by-treatment -treatment basis? Or, or maybe if you just knew about degenerative status with the basis of this work, it would help you set expectations for um, how long this might take with this type of intervention and such. So I'm not really sure that um, there are some measurements that at least in the, the near future, will be you know daily uh, per interaction measurements that we'll have to take. Uh, I think that will only happen if the measurement is is really helpful and meaningful. But there may be some um, that you know having done it once or twice, or at least knowing the background of it, will help you make better decisions as clinicians. So, Greg, I, I'm I'm curious after what you said there with the degenerative changes, if you, if you look back at like, you know, the manual therapist that would say, this is the something like based on their clinical experience, this is a younger fine. And maybe it's more uh, likely to respond to a manipulation versus the older spines where they might do mobilization for more sustained periods. Do you feel, what are your thoughts on that? As you look back on that, do you think there's something that they were feeling or are they just kind of um, probably basing it off of what you said and their clinical experience. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You didn't have that range of subjects to, to look at age. And if that was something that, that was a factor in, in that, it was just the degenerative part and it was a secondary analysis. So it, it really is just idea generating. But yeah, clearly, um, I, I think. The, the spine has times in a in a life arc that uh, you know we don't all respond the same way uh, over time, and and certainly the conditions that the spine has. You know, there's not one type we have for the rest of our lives. 
we're allowed to have multiple problems at different times. So I, I think, yeah, keeping ourselves on our toes and, and remembering, right, that things can change and that patients' conditions can change and what they walked in with a month ago may not be what we're seeing today or five years, 10 years later. I think those are, are really important considerations. And, and that's probably where um, some type of measurement that would be available to keep assessing characteristics that we know might change over a lifespan would be really valuable, I think. Oh, go ahead, Seth. But I don't think agent, go ahead. No, sorry, you go ahead, jump in. I was going to say too, I mean, so you've, you know, we've kind of talked about clinicians assessing these things. And so part of this, um, I kind of want to just, you hear about, I mean, you read the studies where you can randomly, uh, you know, uh, select a section in the spine, you can manipulate that and you can have just as, you know, substantial changes as if the clinician selects the segment, right? So I'm curious, I'm, you know, I, I got you on the podcast here. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw at you because I just got done treating patients today. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to put yeah. out what I typically do with spinal, you know, segmental assessment and you kind of then break down afterward. Okay. You know, what about that? Does, you know, maybe the research doesn't support this or that. So say, all right, I'm going to have a patient lying down on the table. The first thing I might do would be just place my hand on their spine and feel is there an asymmetry in terms of muscle tone? And then I might develop a hypothesis based on that. Okay, I'm going to add, before I go in, it feels like the muscle tone is different on this side. And then going in and segmentally assessing each level. And I think like Derek kind of acknowledged with our training, I think I have maybe a little bit of a... um I second guess myself a little. Second guess isn't the right word, but I have a little humility going into it. But then I might localize. All right, it feels stiffer here. Then the soft tissue is involved here, and then I get the patient involved. Okay, what do you feel when I am on this area that feels stiff? Is that light the symptom that you have? And I guess why I'm doing it is kind of to help me select an intervention for the patient. So when you hear something like that, I think that might be similar to how some clinicians do it. Maybe not. But then as, from what you've learned, are there things about that that you think, oh, maybe you don't need to do it that way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, we we all kind of come up as a, a product of the contextual um, environments in which we're educated and, that you know, we we saw things happen as, as kids. And I, I really do believe that some of what we think is supposed to happen ha has been a result of that, right? That every mechanism is supposed to be like diabetes and insulin, right? That, you know, that kind of clear cut, um, not these multiple complex pathways that probably exist in musculoskeletal. And, and similarly, you know, this idea of, you know, what we grew up in our own lives with healthcare, what we saw on TV, you know, this, very laser focused, you know, this is the problem and then we're going to surgically go in there and that's it. And I, uh, I, I think we've kind of adopted that, that, you know, if, if we can go in there surgically and remove something, you know, there, there, there's some uh, value in us 
thinking that we should be able to do the same, right? Because whether we agree with it or not, I, I think probably back in the day, right? The, the surgeon was someone who, who was like the top of the heap. And if you made it to surgery, that, that was the thing that, you know, you finally needed to have. And, uh, but we know that's not the case now. And, uh, I think we know that, um, specific anatomical issues are not necessarily just hard to find, but maybe not the answer either. So I've been very fortunate that when we do our studies, we sometimes do them under fluoroscopy or cadaverically. You know, we've done a lot of manipulation on cadavers that we then test in robotic situations and things. And I can tell you, you know, how hard it is to imagine you can push on one specific thing and affect, you know, something that's in that little local area. It's so connected. It's so intertwined that, um, you know, really what you're doing, at least in the lumbar spine, if, if someone was laying prone, you, you've got a three point bending situation. The, the pelvis is like one side of the bridge, the ribs are the other, and you've got this lordosis that's bending in the middle. And if you, push in anything other than like L3, you know, you're just able to move the lordosis a little less, more or less. And, you know, I always tell our students here and in other places when I get the chance is that, you know, once you deliver that force, you have no control over where it goes. It's, it's a little bit like standing behind a roller coaster car and you push it forward, but where it goes is kind of entirely dependent on where the tracks take it. So you can decide where to put the force, but in the end, the force travels through the anatomy in the way that is best for that circumstance, right? You can't really control it once it leaves the interface between you and the skin. So, you know, if there's an area that's going to have a response, it's really hard for you to control that. Although what we have shown in some of our tests is that, you know, where you apply the force makes a difference. Clear, clearly, if you give a treatment at L3, it's really hard to, you know, affect the fifth toe. So there is, there is some distance issues there. But, you know, be, being able to, um, to say that there's a, a, a difference between applying something, you know, a couple of millimeters apart, it may be that the force attenuates differently um, because of where you apply it. Uh, but that's the reason. It's it's not because you had to be there because of the anatomy or other. It's it's just that uh, the force moves through the tissues differently because you're sitting over top of different structures than you are if you move a couple of millimeters the other way. Um, and then we get lucky, I think, too. And we got to remember that this is a bit like a broad spectrum antibiotic, right? This The force doesn't laser, you know, focus its way into one particular anatomic structure, it spreads. And uh, I think for better or for worse, that sometimes helps us because with some force, you can cover a lot of anatomy all at once. Um, but in other ways, you know, sometimes you cover a lot of anatomy and you may not want to. So it kind of cuts both ways. But I, I think you know, we've been told these things about specificity. We imagine in our heads, we, we see these things happening. At least I do. I, I, I sort of have these pictures come into my head when I'm treating of what's supposed to be happening anatomically. I don't, don't know if you guys have those kind of weird visions, but it, it's far more general 
when you actually see it um, and you think, wow, you know, how, how do I actually think I'm targeting, you know, some kind of flimsy ligament in between the transverse processes or whatever it is? It's it's pretty tough. So, so you know, you're kind of I just finished teaching a manual therapy advanced practice course here in our PT program and probably about a week ago it finished and much of my messaging was you can't really feel it so don't worry about it go in there and move it manip it move on kind of thing you know test it treat it retest it see how the patient responds um so on and so forth uh and obviously your work is very much emerging right now and a lot of it is based off of technologies and funding and you know just a lot of stuff to be done uh but what would you advise uh or what are you seeing early on in some of your investigations regarding the potential that exists that, no, that's not exactly what we want to be saying. Like clinically, what messaging do we want to be at this level of the research providing our students, our clinicians, those of us that are, you know, maybe saying it doesn't matter, just kind of just get everything kind of going. Um, what are you seeing? What, do you, what are your, what are your thoughts? What are your recommendations there? Yeah, I think there's some exciting areas to go. Um, and, and this includes uh, exercise. This includes manual therapy. Uh, but for the most part, you know, uh, unless we're fortunate enough to stick some electrodes in or whatever, we come up with these ideas of what the intervention is supposed to be doing. And then we kind of assume that that's happening. And, and sometimes we get to measure it, right? Like we might stick electrodes somewhere and see if soleus is contracting or whatever it is. But we, for, for manual therapy, that, that still kind of exists. And we've been fortunate in our lab to kind of reverse engineer this in a way that we can say, all right, let, let, let's apply the manual therapy in this way and then look and see what happens. So we, we take those tissues, we're able to isolate them, and we selectively remove them one at a time. And that changes how much force we can measure. So by the end, we can tell you, like, if we took away 100 tissues and we're finally left with nothing, we can tell you what percentage each of those tissues contributed overall to the, the movement that was, or the forces that were experienced by that. So that, that's cool, but the potential really exists to now back it out the other way in that if you wanted to affect a specific tissue or avoid a specific tissue, how would you design the input of that force to do that better? Is that possible? Um, you know, we we haven't really thought that way. We we always thought about it from an input perspective, but we do have that possibility now, and it it may be that will help us better understand how specific we need to be. We we know from some of the animal studies we've done that we can change the stiffness uh, in an animal spine segment by the location we apply the manual therapy, but clinically in humans that that doesn't seem to be the case because the forces involved probably make it very similar in the end, uh, even though it's statistically significant in that animal model, uh, a little bit of a difference, you know, putting it on the mammillary process or the transverse process or the spinous process. Uh, there's probably enough force getting to where it needs to be anyways. And that's, that's the question is, is there enough force getting to where it needs to be? And I think that's the exciting part that's coming is that as we identify other mechanisms or other things that uh, we have these tools to, to maybe uh, 
figure out who is best responding or what tissues are best responding or best to leave alone. And Greg, I mean, I think you had just another super fascinating study that was um, where you kind of did a similar thing that we're talking about, but you look specifically at stiffness and, and as that being a perceptual inference, you said. Can you talk about that paper and um, what you did? I know you did some things yeah, that, with contextual factors and auditory stimulus. Yeah, there. this is with Tash Stanton, who was a master student of mine and now, of course, is having a, a a great investigative career doing wonderful things in Australia. She's Canadian, though. I'll point that out. And um, she had this great idea that we collaborated on. She came back up here and, you know, we've been measuring the stiffness for a while. She's been doing other related things. And we thought, what if we put the two together and really explored if you could alter someone's contextual factors? Would it maybe change the physical measure of stiffness? So, you know, we played them nice sounds and we played them horrific sounds and uh, wanted to see if, if this might alter uh, what it is they felt. And it altered what they thought their back felt like. Um, they were either convinced their back was a little more stable or unstable or stiff or not stiff, but it didn't change the actual stiffness of the back itself. Um, so th this brings up a lot of interesting things. And there, there's one study that we're hoping to do soon is that, you know, what is it that stiffness actually means to different people? So when I, I'm, we're asking, Tasha and I are asking, you know, how does this affect your stiffness? What does that actually mean to those people? Do they think of it in terms of range of motion or how quickly they can get out of bed in the morning? Or, you know, what is it exactly? Because what we measure is probably completely different than what people's definition in their head is when you think of, is your back stiff today? So they may be completely opposite constructs of, of what stiffness is and, you know, how, how they relate to each other is one of those great questions about the integration of, of patient reported somethings and objectively measured somethings and, and how do they cross over. It's kind of like when, what we started with, all, you know, you just have this mishmash of so many contextual factors that are influencing like every aspect of patient encounters. It's fascinating. Yeah. And then, you know, we just published a study a, a year or so ago where we showed that manual therapy, I don't think anyone has ever showed this, that it actually changes the genetic uh, expression in discs, like right away. Uh, whether that's significant or whether it's a good thing or it could be a, a terrible thing, we don't know. Um, you know, it's easy to imagine someone takes that and runs with and go, okay, you know, come get your DNA changed with, with this particular intervention. But yeah, there's so much going on. I think it's kind of, it's humbling, but it also shows us, I think, how a little arrogant we can be by trying to think we actually know what's going on right now completely and that we should bypass certain things like they're a little passe. Um, I, I think, yeah, we're just starting to scratch the surface of, of what's going on here. And uh, when we get even past the idea of biomechanics and or, or neurological stuff, and oh, remember, there's the the biological as well, sort of. Um, yeah, what about the biology of it all? Like, did someone just forget to measure that and think that it might be, you know, important? So uh, that's, I think, where contextual factors have burst onto the scene as well. So. All of these things interplay, and they probably interplay in different ways at different times for different people. And that's going to be the trick is to, to figure out the balances. 
Uh, and Greg, I want to talk a little bit about um, the figuring it out process. Um, I work alongside with Pat Cook um, here in the same program. And I know that you are involved a lot with um, him and Forcenet and such. And I'm you know vaguely familiar with Forcenet. And you mentioned that earlier on. And obviously with um, all of the inquiries that you have and the research ideas that you have, um, and even just coming up with you know, how much the biomechanisms matter and such obviously is going to take a lot of a lot of work. And I believe that that's where Forcenet comes into play. And obviously, Forcenet to me is fascinating because it's not just one aspect of it. It's kind of the entire um, contextual process um, that interplays on that. But can you give us a little bit of an idea about what Forcenet is and what you're hoping um, will be accomplished through that as well? Forcenet is cool. Let me just say that right off the bat. It's fantastic. It's it's what a lot of us have always dreamed of. I mean, if, if I can just take a second to give you the background on it, I mean, a lot of funding that comes uh, for research is what we all know kind of happens traditionally, right? You apply to these governmental agencies or other things and and uh, maybe you're lucky you scored, you know, the five or the seven percent or less who get one of these and, and off you go. Um, Forcenet's a little different in that it's initiative by the NIH to say, um, you know, what would happen if, if we actually gave a pot of money to the researchers and said, uh, you know, you're kind of at the ground level. You know, are there some good things you could do with this that are maybe a little different than the way we've been doing it? And they've been doing a great job. It's it's just maybe a, a different look and a different way of, of distributing this. So one of the mandates we have is not just to give this funding away, but it is to create a community behind it. And it's super important because the, so much gets done when you're able to interact and bring in ideas and, and work with people who, who have different perspectives. And, and I think we've all had that experience, right? Like you're just at a dinner party and you have a conversation with someone and, and they bring an idea to the table that you haven't thought of. And you think, wow, that, that, that really changes how I thought about whatever it was. And I, I think that's been just an unbelievable tsunami of opportunities lately between the, the different professions that do manual therapy. Uh, you know, I've just had the best experiences working with, with colleagues who come from different professional clinical backgrounds. And we're just so excited because we tend not to work with each other. And when we get the chance, it's kind of like long lost relatives and you, you've done a DNA test and you say, well, you're my cousin. What? And you know, you meet at a, a, a meeting and you, you have all these similarities and you're, you're shit. I, I know your stuff. And, and I've just had nothing but the best experiences, uh, uniting forces with, with, my colleagues in other professions and other clinical backgrounds. And so we wanted to bring that to Forcenet and it really seems to be working well. And the, the other thing that Forcenet does is not only bring people together and give another opportunity for research funding, is it, um, it, it also provides a way to um, focus on mechanisms when that maybe isn't a priority of, of current funding agencies. And, that's totally understandable, right? If we did it the way we maybe imagined it 20 years ago, we're all going to figure out the mechanisms that's going to lead to discovery and lead to cures, and then we're going to be fine. 
Well, kind of what happened in the meantime is we don't have some, we have some pretty good approaches for some of these problems now. Um, good enough that I think some people say, well, why are we even bothering with mechanistic research, right? Like, what's the point now? I've got guidelines that say, you know, let's educate patients and we'll do exercise and all these. Why, why bother? And the classic example is always, you know, aspirin and other things is that it worked for pain. Um, and we knew that long before we ever knew the molecular interactions of the drug. But once people came along and kind of figured out how it worked, there were these other things that were discovered about the drug that it ended up being helpful for things no one could have imagined. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we pursue mechanisms is because it might help us not only explain how we're helping people now, you know, like explain how aspirin worked when we're using it anyways, but maybe it will illuminate new places to go and new populations to use this with in ways that, you know, we're not really imagining where there's a case of one that we all dismiss, but really if if we knew more about it, maybe that case of one turns into a, a pretty important population. So I think that was my best answer today. I got to tell you, I, I think that pretty much covered everything. That was your best answer. And I kind of wanted to actually, I, I'm, I was kicking myself because I actually wanted to ask a question around the um, aspirin sort of story, because it truly is what you just said there. I think, what we've been through we're kind of like we can't explain why it works and ingrained in my head in my training was don't worry about the why worry about the if right and i like you said i think that we've discovered the the if to some extent and it actually it's really interesting because when i'm starting to look at manual therapy research and you know who are the researchers in manual therapy and when you really look at it it's kind of died off a little bit there because like you said there's been i think a, a pretty large amount of research that has, you know, been relatively consistent in the body of literature on manual therapy on the ifs, like you said, we've been able to synthesize it, create clinical practice guidelines, say that we need to do this. You know, the 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 specificity and the recipe um, behind that is probably missing a little bit there. And I wonder if in some respects, maybe that's why it's missing. I mean, we, we look at a lot of the human contextual factors, all of these other things that we're measuring right now in terms of predicting those who would be successful, but maybe there is something that is missed because we say things like, well, it doesn't matter. You can manipulate the thoracic spine. You can do it manipulate one way or another way or another way, and it doesn't really matter. But then when you look at it, the effect sizes across the board aren't, they're significant, but it's not that great of an effect size. So yeah, I, I'm glad that you answered it that way because I was just curious as to maybe that's, maybe that's some of the secret sauce there as well. Well, yeah, I think the secret sauce on the research side is getting the population right. And and we just don't know, right? If you sort of take me at my word and at my data, that there there are some people who seem to respond quickly to manipulation, probably quick, quickly enough that the contextual factors don't matter, right? Um, you know, if someone gets on the table and we do the intervention and we measure their stiffness again and it changes right away and, and others don't, and the contextual factors are the same, at, at least, you know, most of them, not the internal ones for the patient. Um, it, it does suggest that there's something about that spine that responded in a way that the other didn't. And um, if we lump all those people into a test population and expect them to all have the same outcomes, 
you know, we just continually shoot ourselves in the foot with these low effect sizes because we, we say it's, oh, non-specific, you know, homogeneous population. No one had radiculopathy. We think everyone is the same. And we know from clinic it's not, but, but yet it gets difficult to figure out who we should actually be enrolling in studies. So we just kind of keep doing the best we can. But I think some of the results we get is because we just don't understand that yet. I do think it exists. Um, may, maybe not uh, as clear cut as we think that there's responders and non-responders. And that, that's a whole other question. But I think in the end, and this will this maybe gets me in trouble. It wouldn't be a an interview without a little controversy, right? But I think that you know, there's a lot of people who are like science is broken and the RCT is meaningless, and I, I think there's some truth to that, right? We we all have been trained about what the limitations of it are, and you're you're figuring out a population response and these things. But you know, if we kind of look at maybe where the future is going, you know, ideally. You know, if we wanted to know, Seth or Derek, if something works in you, we we collect all the Seths and the Dereks in the world, and we do the trial on them. You know, not necessarily the people who have the same name, but the, the same genetic profile or whatever bank of tests we do. Say, okay, here's here's everybody who truly is homogeneous. Let's see how you do when we give you this intervention. I think if, if we could fast forward 500 years, I, I wonder if that's where the state of science would be, is that finally we're able to do interventional trials on people who we really know share similar characteristics. That reminds me of a, a, a paper that I'm actually um, trying to get accepted into a journal right now. And the reviewer basically, to their point, says, um, well, this population doesn't seem homogenous. And I'm like, well, it's about as homogenous as I can make it. And it's a systematic review. Yeah. It's about as homogenous as I can make it for a meta-analysis. And so totally understand. Uh, and maybe that's what we have to accept is right now, like these kind of effect sizes maybe are as best as we can do based on the kinds of, of sample groups we can put together. But but it really does explain, like we, we really do try our best. And when we, you see, you know, investigators who you know are, you know, they've got all the integrity of the world, you know their methods, you know what they do, and they come out with a manual trial that shows a really positive result. And then you've got a colleague who you respect just as much, and they come out with a trial, and it's completely negative, and you wonder why. And you think, it, you know, it might just come down to, to who, who the participants are in that trial. And, uh, you know, it was an 80-20 responders, non-responders, or, or 20-80, or, you know, whatever the, the balance might be. So, Maybe this really is as, as good as we can get until we answer some some pretty fundamental things about inclusion criteria and such. I think that really is, I mean, this is important work, Greg. I mean, I, I mean you get these patients in the clinic that maybe we don't really know yet why you have that patient that responds so dramatically and another one that doesn't. Um, I think you hear, you know, on social media or wherever that, oh, it's just contextual factors. That's why they responded so quickly. But you have patients that believe they're going to do really well that don't. And you don't really know the whole picture yet. So. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's our nature to say, you know, it's all contextual factors or, you know, we, we've gone through it, right? It's all transverse susceptibility, or it's all this. And we just kind of put all our eggs in one basket because it's simple to talk about that way and and on and on we go. 
So I, I think we're going to have to become more nonlinear, complex thinkers to, to really kind of get a handle on it. And that, yeah. that will be, I think, as important as critical um, thinking skills is, you know, complex thinking skills. That, that's the next level. Yeah. The next level will be in about five years from now when we have you back on the hands-on, hands-off podcast and you're explaining to us all these mechanisms that you have found and all the solutions that we have to maybe some of the the, the problems we have. Maybe that's where we'll end up at. Um, but Greg, I, I, I know can't that you're sweet for that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And then we can come visit you in Edmonton, Alberta. You have the really cool Mall of America. I read the Mall of America. I totally put Minneapolis in there. Um, the, uh, what is that? What is the West the West Edmonton Mall, right? The West Edmonton, the West Edmonton Mall. Mall. I, I think we yeah. were bigger than Mall of America. You one, were. And now there's many Mall. around the world that eclipse yeah. us, right? But I think when you're in the Northern Territory, you got to got to have something to do indoors. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, it's a long indoor season, and hockey only goes so far. But uh, yeah. but if I can just finish and say, it's it's just you know as you're sort of going through your career and you're, you know, going through these things where you acquire skills and you're able to do science and you, you throw away the things that you think maybe aren't paying off and you, you're able to look at other things. And then you reach the next stage, which is, it's starting to come up now, which is building community. And it's just so exciting to see the different groups getting together and understanding the potential to do good together. And uh, that's, that's really what, I'm passionate about now and excited about things like, like Forcenet and other opportunities. Cause I think this is really what can leapfrog us ahead. Uh, we we're more powerful together than we are apart. And it's been really exciting to, to, and a privilege to be part of this. So thank you so much for having me on the show and, and the, the respect we have for each other. And, uh, it's tremendous to see. Thank you for that. Uh, 100% agree. Um, we are much, when we, when we're related and we work together, we're going to be a lot better than if we're related and we work against each other. <laughs> we, we do have well, a said. similar DNA, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> we do. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Greg, very much for being on the show. Have a great day. Thanks, Greg. You too. Take care. All the best. Come up to Edmonton. We'd love to have you. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Hands-On, Hands-Off podcast. Be sure to visit the Duke CMET, that's C-E-M-M-T, website for more resources and materials. That's sites.duke.edu slash CMET. And remember, please subscribe to our podcast.